0: Support for Refined by Fire comes from Elkhart Brass. Elkhart Brass is a new sponsor on the show. And when we talk about Elkhart, we can talk about a lot of things. We talk about Made in America. We talk about Elkhart Brass rocking out since 1902 or the wide variety of product application. Um, But I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to tell you that we're repping Elkhart Brass on this show and taking them on as a sponsor because we believe that Elkhart truly has the best interest of the end user in mind. In a world of gimmicks and sales pitches that is fire service vendors, Elkhart is making nozzles and appliances that are truly firefighter focused and they believe that their products speak for themselves and I have to agree. If your committee or your department is looking to make a purchase of nozzles and appliances, go to ElkartBrass.com, find your dealer, and hit them up. Uh, lastly, stay tuned at the end of the show. We're gonna have a special little piece from Elkhart Brass for everyone to check out.
1: Yo. Yo. Yo.
0: Welcome to lucky episode number seven of the Refined by Fire podcast. As always, Refined by Fire is a production of Brothers in Battle Media. My esteemed guest for episode number seven is Battalion Chief Kurt Isaacson. Kurt Isaacson's a 28-year vet of the fire service. He's a battalion chief in Escambia County, Florida, and a second-generation fireman. It might be easier to talk about what Kurt hasn't done rather than what he has done. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm a guy that's involved with a lot of things, and I surround myself with people who are involved with a lot of things, people who are on the path. Uh, but I, even by those standards, Chief Isaacson seems to be omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once, teaching all over the country, writing articles running like a half a different conferences uh, down there on Pensacola Beach, the most high profile of which is HROC, the high-rise operations conference. I'm just so excited for this talk. A couple short notes. When Chief and I talk about Andy early in the interview, uh, we're referring to the late Andy Fredericks of FDNY. I realize that I'm not very good at this, and I need to step my game up when we're speaking about people to stop using one name or the other use a full name maybe give a little background for the listener so that's it i'm going to stop talking uh, chief isaacson really brought his a game here for this talk and i appreciate him so much doing it uh, so i'll shut up no more from me let's get to my conversation with chief kurt isaacson all right great well i'm really honored to have chief kurt isaacson here with us on the refined by fire podcast hey chief how are you great how about yourself Doing good. It's really cool to be to be talking with you today. We're talking here in January. It's winter. Uh, I know this is, or at least it seems to be, an incredibly busy time for you. So first of all, thanks for taking the time to do it. You're involved with putting on a bunch of conferences down there in the panhandle of Florida. HROC, which is high-rise, also heavy rescue operations conference, command officer boot camp, water on the fire, back to basics. You're doing all these things in the winter down there. Um, So first, uh, I kind of wanted to ask about HROC, the high-rise operations conference, how it got started and how it's grown.
1: Um, Well, Ray McCormick and I were actually flying to uh, San Diego to teach at Firehouse World, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And uh, we're just talking about, you know, getting interest and focus on high-rise firefighting and that high-rise firefighting is really of the future. Every city's going vertical. And getting a a conference, that's what the main focus is, standpipe operations. And basically at 30,000 feet, we just kind of came up with the idea. And then I went out to Pensacola Beach and started realizing we could pull this off with the business owners out there and the support of them supporting the the mission of high-rise fire suppression.
0: Very cool. You know, you're doing so much down there um, with all those conferences um, and in addition to that, like you just mentioned, San Diego firehouse world, you presented FDIC in 2018. You're going to be at the best conference of all, which is firemanship conference in Portland. Uh, I'm a little, uh, partial to that myself. Um, you run the County fire tactics blog and social media. Um, as I understand it, you were instrumental in starting the firefighter rescue survey. Well, I'm just wondering how you manage this all, how you're keeping your arms around all of this.
1: Um, uh, you know, it can be tough. It's just, you know, when you have a passion or a drive and you love something, you just, you kind of find the time, you know, uh, the last couple of years, I've definitely focused more on balance of managing it and, and doing it with, you know, wife and kids and that sort of thing. Cause I do have, you know, an awesome wife and three great kids, um, type of deal. And that's where the whole command officer boot camp bringing your spouse came about. But the big thing is team just, you know, having a team of people that are in it, people like yourself, you know, how it is. You None of this one person does it. It's a team of folks, you know, working together, um, and I, I see in the world of delegation is huge. Empower people. Um, you know, just had a, a guy call me earlier. He's a big helper with the conferences. And, you know, he's got a set of keys to all the storage units where we keep everything. And he's like thinking me and ought to be thinking him. That stuff's just as much his as it is mine. And, you know, it really just comes down to a, a brotherhood, regardless of its female or male firefighters the brotherhood of the fire service working together so it's you know the answer is getting the hands around it's easy when you got a team like we have here in the 850 and escambia county and uh the other instructors that come in for all the conferences
0: excellent i'm glad you mentioned command officer boot camp and it being a spouse friendly conference I think the first time I ever uh, was introduced to you was on a fire engineering radio show. And I heard you talking about uh, some of these conferences and specifically that you mentioned COBC as a spouse-friendly conference. And it it resonated with me. I've got a wife, I've got three kids and the fire service is incredibly important to me. Um, My family's also incredibly important to me and it can be tough to manage being great at both of those things. So um, kind of what was the genesis of that? And, um, can you talk about, I've definitely noticed, it seems like you're being more intentional, especially in social media of like highlighting your wife and putting, um, thanking her for all of the support and the work that she does. So can you talk, kind of talk about maybe the struggle of the balance, maybe places where you failed places where you succeeded and, and, uh, give us, give us kind of the, the evolution there.
1: Well, you know, um, first and foremost, you know, my my wife, supported the fire service from day one while we were dating, you know, when we first started going on dates and we'd meet at the beach, I'd bring my books, you know, to, to study for promotional exams. So she's always supported it and and been a big supporter and fan of fire service. And the more I traveled, the more I realized that there were some wives out there that didn't support it. And, you know, the mission of fire service wasn't for them. And I started realizing that the parallels of a military officer, and and getting wives involved with the fire service and getting wives. So I focused on that, which, you know, my wife and I had some trials and tribulations on married and, you know, I'm pretty open. We went to counseling to, to work on a better relationship. And I realized that, you know, I think getting her involved in it because she supported it so much was going to make a stronger team, her having buy-in, getting her involved in not only the local firefighters that she knew, but closer, you know, with the firefighters from around the country that I travel with. So when I'm going somewhere, I'm not just, oh yeah, Ray and I are going here. She truly knows Ray. She's had dinner with him, you know, or whoever it might be. She's, you know, she's involved in a part of it. And we first started running, actually Ray and I, the first seminar we did was eight years ago, Urban to Suburban Fire Tactics on Pensacola Beach. It was a one-day seminar. Ray came in and my wife, Jessica, did all the registration. She did the the flyers. She did the things. She checked them in when they came in. And that's kind of, how I got her involved. And I just started realizing that a lot of firefighters' wives, you know, firefighters have been married 10, 15, 20 years. Their wives kind of really had no clue what a fire conference was. I think they thought all we did was go drink. And so I thought if we could get them there and they would see the professional development side, good speakers, this isn't your typical junior college where somebody's getting paid, you know, $25 an hour just for a side job, these are speakers, you know, they're getting paid maybe, but they speak from the heart and passion and that that would get more buy-in. And last year we had over 60 wives at command officer boot camp, and it was overwhelming how many had been married to firefighters for 10, 15, even over 20 years. It's the first time they'd ever been welcomed or invited to a fire conference to not only be involved during the daytime for the classes, but at nighttime and the social networking to see that we truly are talking shop. We're talking about fighting fires. We're talking about being better at our job, talking about how much we love our job and that just gets them to be on the same team.
0: Well, I appreciate your example in that area of this year will be the first year that, that I bring my wife out to a conference. And it's just going to be for the, the last day of, of Portland firemanship. And then we're going to make it a weekend away you know, from the kids. And, and uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. And I, again, I appreciate your example there. Uh, so Chief, you are a battalion chief in Escambia County down mm-hmm. in the Florida panhandle. Can you talk to us a little bit about like the idiosyncrasies, unique obstacles or advantages, kind of what firefighting is like where you're from?
1: Um well, it's, you know, it's kind of how CountyFireTactics.com, you know, was it came about was just be working in a county fire department. Before I work before I started with Escambia County in 2000, um I worked for the Pensacola Fire Department I actually did 9 years there which is local 707, you know, a, a more densely urban you know, no rural area city fire department was ISO one at one time. And so there I knew what it was like to pull up, you know, with three engines, a truck and a rescue in less than six or seven minutes. The first due company can't get done with a size up and all the rigs are on top of them. And then I went to the county when it first went paid and realized the diversities of it from high rises on the Gulf front to silos and farmland in the north end, uh, Scambia County being 664 square miles, about 350,000 people where majority of those people lived down by the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, I started realizing one day I I literally went to uh, like a a silo rescue where somebody was in a grain silo trapped up to their shoulders. That afternoon, I'm down on Pensacola Beach and we're doing extractor sled rescues with the jet skis pulling out of the Gulf of Mexico. Another day, I'm at like a barn fire. And then that night, we got a high-rise fire on Perdido Key on the eighth floor. And it was just, you know, things and it started coming together that, my travels, of, and I've been going to conferences my whole career. My dad was big about paying and sending me to conferences, even as a rookie firefighter, that, you know, the textbooks are great. Theory is great, but textbooks in theory is a foundation, and it's not something that you can totally lean on when you pull up with a four-person engine company. You got a, you know, a large two-story house, and the closest hydrant is 3,000 feet away. I mean, that's where, you know, it sounds great to lay in a supply line, but if you, even if you use three rigs and you relay pump, the house would be on the ground. we got to get in there, hit it hard, hit it fast, and back it up. And that's where the whole aggressive factor of what can we do with tank water? What can we do with one rig? What can we do with two rigs? And I was fortunate enough that our staffing during the Monday through Friday was pretty good. But at nighttime and weekends, it was volunteers responding to the station and out. And then we started putting on one 24-hour company at a time. So as a battalion chief... I was fortunate enough, I would go to fires, and I would be myself and four other firefighters, one rig, 750 gallons. I found out what the max was of with that, and then a year later, we get a second engine company down the street, gets put on duty at the next firehouse, and now we're going to fires for a year or two with two rigs. And so now, I'm fortunate enough, in Escambia County, we're, we're getting about 25 firefighters on a fire ground in a pretty good amount of time, and it's it's your typical, more urban staffing, if you will. But I was lucky enough to kind of go from that, you know, theory doesn't work to reality of, you know, rural staffing in a suburban urban setting and how to make the most of
0: it. Yeah, I think it's a really great resource, CountyFireTactics.com and all the stuff you guys have done for a large majority of the fire service where we, we do have this really wide variety of a threat spectrum and potential calls that we could be responding to. Something you guys did down there in Escambia, as I understand it, you conducted a nozzle study several years ago, maybe a a decade ago. Is that right? Uh,
1: It was in the late 90s. Um, It actually originated how it came about in 1997. I was in Jacksonville at the Florida Fire Chiefs Convention, the Fire Rescue Convention. Um, As a firefighter, uh, I was actually there to take a class from Bill Gustin. And I went by the Elkhart booth and and a sales guy by the name of Blair was there and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I've been reading Andy Frederick's articles and I'd like to get an inch and three quarter and a two and a half inch smoothbore. So this is um, this is like January of 1997. And, and, you know, I'm young now. I was real young. I mean, it was 20, 21 years ago, actually this month. And he said, no problem. I just got to clear it. You know, you're not a chief or whatever. But that didn't mean anything. You, you know, you're going to you can make stuff happen. I came back the next day to his booth. And he took all my information, and within a week in my doorstep, I got an inch and three-quarter smoothbore and a two-and-a-half-inch smoothbore. And based on reading Andy Frederick's articles that he had written before that January of 97, I started, you know, flowing. I was already into flowing water from a class that I took in in 1992 from a guy named Bill Richards out of the Florida State Fire College, which basically, he, not, he didn't just talk about the BTUs being overwhelmed by the GPMs. He put it, I mean, he really put it to where we could understand it. So... Um, he was my first introduction in 1992 in a class of, you know, hitting fires with a two and a half, even house fires, and then reading Andy Frederick's articles and getting those nozzles on the rigs, I was able to find um, my captain at Pensacola time was, hey, they're not gonna let us put them on there permanently, but every third day when I'm the captain, we can put them on a rig. And so that winter, um, that, that February of 1997, we were going to fires and we started like hitting fires with an inch and three smooth bore, two and a half inch smooth bore and it was like a five gallon bucket on a cigarette. It was just, it was exciting for us. It was not exciting for the second and third new company because we had the <laughs> um, And then that study started to evolve over the time, but the real big study was in 99 and 2000, when we really started getting down to kink testing, uh, desired amount, desired location, desired nozzle reaction, doing the gallons per second test, where we're not just flowing water in a parking lot. Not too many people go to a parking lot that's on fire. We wanted to get into a two and a half story drill tower that had furniture, you know, diminished visibility with a smoke machine and see with a flow meter outside, what is a three and four person engine company truly flowing when we're asking them to flow and push, push and flow and using a stopwatch, looking at a flow meter outside while the crew's inside. And that's kind of how the whole birth of my passion in 99, 2000 of the seven eights came about. We found that the fifteen sixteenth was great in the parking lot. It looks awesome. But we found out that even a good firefighter trying to push up a set of residential stairs with a return was having to cut down. And we did the math and we were putting more water in that two and a half story drill tower with a seven eighths that they didn't have to shut down, that they could move, make the bends, make the turns. Where the 15 16th was pretty awesome, but for a smaller townhouse type fire, a private dwelling, a ranch, those type of things, the seven eighths is really where it drove. So we're looking at, you know, basically 18, 19 years now, or if you date back to 97, 21 years that I've really, the seven eights has been something that each year I just get more and more excited about how awesome it is. And I just, you know, would love to see the fire service test it out and put a, the ego to a side that they've always said the 15, is it. And maybe say, Hey, yeah, the 15, is great, but let me truly open my eyes to what a seven eights will do.
0: Yeah, that's so fantastic. Uh, I love that you mentioned ego. Because I I do feel like that's a big part of it. I'm a huge proponent of the 7-8 smoothbore tip as well. And, I mean, you covered it. it. um, for the majority of firefighters, especially with that three-man staffing, or two-o staffing, um, we're able to actually put more water in because we're able to keep the bale open while we flow, while we go upstairs, et cetera. Um, and I do feel like a lot of times it's a li- there's a little bit of ego there, like you know, no, nah, we can we can handle the fifteen sixteenths, but um, yeah, uh, I really appreciate some of you guys who who are being a little more realistic with, with talking about this 7 8 tip.
1: It is. And it's hard for somebody that that, you know, they've been driving the 1516s. There's nothing wrong with the 1516s. Obviously, the 1516s has been putting out fires for a long, long time. But there's even a lot of people, you know, um, Chief Morris, Captain Morris, um, you know, was, you know, he he, he sat on the front row of when I taught gallons per second at Firehouse about 10 years ago um, in San Diego. And afterwards, he came up to me and he was like, you know, Kurt. I wanted the seven eights in, in New York back in the seventies. He said, that's what I wanted. And when he left rescue one in the FDNY and he went to Connecticut, guess what he picked when he's now he's an assistant chief on staff. He's running a seven eights. Um, and him and I've had a long conversation about it. Um, it's just putting that thing aside. I, I like to always point out to people that UL went with 150 as their flow, not 185 for all these UL tests. So, you know uh, the, the reality is, you know, I tell folks the seven eights, I've been, i um, fortunate enough to watch awesome firefighters work. Uh, as sad as it is, I do a lot more spectating from the front yard talking on a radio. Um, and the amount of fire that I watch our firefighters extinguish using a 7.8. And most of the time when we're using our 7.8, we're not even pumping it at 165, 160. We're pumping it down at 150. It's getting under pumped. And that's another positive about the 7.8s, is there's margin for flexibility there. You can under pump and over pump a 7.8 you can't under pump a 15 sixteenths it's catastrophic the kinks you'll get depending on the brand of hose or the make or model of hose if you over pump it we all know now you better pin that thing down and, and basically make it a stationary line so the 15 sixteenths is more that area that you better be right on the number that you need and that was another key factor you know for us um is that combat mobility and the fact that a pump operator can be under a little bit they can be over a little bit and with the majority of the fire service and Whoever's assigned to that nozzle, they're still going to do a good job.
0: Yeah. Our mutual friend, Dennis Laguerre, talks about that as envelope of function, right? Where we can move a little bit down or a little bit up, and we've got a wider range of function. It doesn't have to be quite so on the, on the nuts.
1: No, definitely. Guaranteed.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up gallons per second. Um, that's something that I first read in a piece that you wrote, about your brother Maurice Bartholomew that's um, correct would you uh tell us about Maurice, tell us about who he was, what he meant to you, kind of what he went through, and then how that uh, morphed into you um, developing and pushing this gallons per second idea
1: well um he he was a firefighter that you know got on the job after me was um, very into the job, excited about the job he was actually close to finish up his fire science degree, was taking classes at nighttime. Just one of those happy-go-lucky guys that came to the firehouse. Man, um, you know, just a beautiful smile. That was what I always gave him a hard time about. And he was, um, he was, you know, working at a couple of other stations where, um, to respectfully put it, was not appreciated. His enthusiasm wasn't appreciated. Um, they just kind of shunned him aside. Uh, you know, he, he was looking to better himself. There was no mentorship going on and so uh, I went to my battalion chief and I said, "Hey, can we get Maurice transferred downtown with us and put him on the back of Engine five? And so the, uh, my battalion chief, one of my top mentors, moved him down to Engine Five, and he was on the back of uh, Engine Five, assigned there. Now, um, you know, I, I worked to get him transferred down there to mentor him, but there were some some for me. I was starting to get frustrated within the organization of not being allowed to be so into the job, going to conferences, you know, all there, I came back from another conference. He came back from FDIC. He's going to want to, and they were anti smooth war um, type of deal. So I had within my own mind had given up almost. So I wasn't, I got him transferred, but then I didn't step up and mentor him. You know, if I could go back, I would would give him the message from the articles at Andy that I read of Andy's and, you know, taking Andy's classes when it first went to Indianapolis in the nineties and and motivated him with that, and I can't go back. So Thanksgiving of 2000, we're working together, and he actually got skipped on overtime to watch before. We have an overtime alphabetical list, and they skipped him by accident or whatever, so they had to come back and get him. So they came back to get him on the day after Thanksgiving of 2000, and he was working on the back engine five, which is what he was assigned to, a uh, rigged it, just shortly before that on the windshield had firefighting five on it because we were going to that many fires. Um, it seemed like we were going to at least a working fire a day. So he had been to a lot of fires. I mean, that was not an issue at all. And he, um, he responded that night to 800, uh, uh East Hatton street on engine five first due 1200 square foot house fire, um, self venting out the Charlie Delta windows, he stretches a line to the front door. It was a, a acromatic nozzle flowing 80 gallons a minute, uh, which the 80 gallons probably would have got the job done if he would have been trained that, hey, your job is to get that nozzle to the fire. Nozzle, firefighter on the nozzle, seek and destroy the fire. From there, we search from the fire room back. Um, but that was not a part of the culture. It was, it was reported as entrapment. So he's making entry, insert, dragging a hose line, not flowing water, searching rooms, as the front doors open, that's oxygen in, that's upper explosive limit gases are out, it's, it's on the A side, the fire's on the CD side, it's pulling the fire. So the fire starts to grow, and that's where things kind of go bad, and to keep a long story short, um, the fire kind of wraps around them. Simultaneously, this is 2000, this is the time of literally at the peak of positive pressure attack. Um. everybody's watching the VHS tapes. I think they were green tapes on when you get there, make everything better with a positive pressure fan. But nobody truly studied enough of how powerful is the fan? How many CFM? What's the size of the opening? Is it going to overpressurize and force fire to come back out the front? And, and that sort of thing, you know, kind of relates to the Contra Costa fire they had. Um, and so he's in there, things go bad. The uh, company officer and the, the door firefighter go to leave. They think he's following him. Following them out, he doesn't, he gets off the line, gets off the nozzle, goes the wrong way and crawls right into the fire room. So that, um, when the fire was ex- that fire was over, of course, investigation, I volunteered and stood in the front yard in front of that house, actually, and stood guard, you know, to protect the scene, you know, for, for investigation purposes. Um, let talk about a small word, just a side note. At the time, I didn't know who it was, but uh, Matt Negley, my buddy from Orlando, um, who killed himself, November was a year ago. Um, you know, something else that we need to, to attack in the American fire service is suicide. Nobody wants to talk about it. Um, but Matt and uh, um, I think Stallings and a couple other guys, I know it was Matt for sure. I hadn't met them. They actually drive up and they see me in the front yard and they, they're talking to me and we didn't really become friends until, you know, like six years later. But I'm standing out there looking at that house and I just looked at it and I thought, this is a bread and butter fire. I mean, it's like the Pinwell videos that say bread and butter. I mean, that's what it was. It was it was a fire that Maurice had been to. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know fifty times. I mean, dozens. I mean, I'd personally been to dozens and dozens of of you know good fires with him. Fires, you know, blowing out four and five windows, and we went in with the nozzle open and we flowed. And that night, he went in. Um, I, I was not on duty. I was off duty. I was at home. I knew they had a fire, and so I was headed in to take pictures. I buffed my own job. I was never too cool for school. I didn't I didn't care about it. If there was a fire and I could go, I went there and they would make fun of me. Hey, Ike, you're not getting paid, I know, but I wanna take pictures. And as I'm responding, I get a phone call from Pat Grace, um, who actually now is the fire chief of Escambia County, and says, I think they have a missing member. And I get there and they, they, they can't find him. And so all of that goes kind of in my head, together of, of me kind of muddling through how does a firefighter on engine five and Pensacola die in a fire that we've done, you know, just in the last month, we've done over a half a dozen times uh, uh, literally when the fire was extinguished, only two rooms were truly burned up. The house didn't burn down from the street. You could tell fire was venting out a couple of windows and I just couldn't comprehend it. And that's when I was like, I got to take, you know, Andy's message. And this was before nine 11. I said, I got to be an ambassador. I, I got to be, I got to I got to take Andy's message of his articles that I've been reading back through the 90s in his classes, and now I got to deliver it to the Panhandle of Florida, and that's when I really got on a rampage of being in people's face. Before that, I tried to play politics of worrying about offending people about you know the fog attack and automatic nozzles and you know radio straps. If you've ever read my article called "The New Yorker: The Urban Legend," um, that article is me politically trying to be nice. That. I went through a time of just trying to do my own thing without being in people's face and my buddy got killed in the fire. And so to, to just be frank, I don't give a shit anymore. You know, it's like, you know, this is right. You know, like right's right. And wrong's wrong. We got to flow water. We got to flow it in the proper way. We got to wear the gear. We got to have the straps. I mean, you got to read history, you know, and I, I know I'm bouncing around, but you know, I started putting things together, going back to the watch street fire with John Drennan and listening to his wife talk and, the New York city fire department being next to Chicago, one of the last major departments, that hasn't gone to bunker pants. I literally was on duty in Pensacola when they brought me my first hood and said, here, sign this piece of paper, you're getting issued a flash hood. And my brain was like, we gotta make a push. We gotta make a move, you know, and our moves not to stand outside, our moves not to be, you know, more stagnant. It's gotta be more aggressive in training so we can be more aggressive on the fire ground. And that's where I started to drive the whole water on the fire and doing that, to get to your question, was the nozzle study. So I'd already done some nozzle studies. I already knew that I wanted 150 GPM uh, based on my mentors and what they were writing about, um, what I'd seen on a fire ground that was working or not working, and I just needed to truly prove it. And that's when we got all three manufacturers, TFT, Akron, and um, Elkhart involved. And we got we had our flow meters, we had their flow meters, we got all the Midway drill tower, which is a two and a half story tower, and we not only started doing parking lot flows, we started doing drill tower flows, and we started doing everything from inch and three quarters. We did every type of nozzle: selected gallons, automatic, smooth bore. Um, we didn't know it was water mapping at the time; it was not state of the art, but we were wanting to see how much water is coming out the front door because there was a crack in the front door, and to see, you know, where's the water runoff, what's it doing, and we weren't measuring it. But with our eyes, and our, it was enough that our eyes could see that when we had the front windows open on this drill tower and we'd blitz it or quick water to Chicago called it with two and a half, we'd see this water cascading out the front door. When we would hit it with an inch to three a quarter with one 150, we kind of saw it, but it wasn't enough. And that's when the whole thing evolved of hit it hard, hit it fast, and back it up. And before the whole hit it hard from the yard or transitional attack was just Chicago style. Punch that thing in the face and then move in with a line that'll take care of a 10 by 10 room, take care of a closet, take care of what Ray calls the drywall. Getting in there was something like I like to refer to as SEAL Team 6. And that's when, when they went over to get that scumbag. They didn't walk in that building with fifty calibers. They walked in there with handguns and cleared room by room until they found him him behind his wives. And that's where they had handguns. And I wanted to find something that was strong enough, powerful enough, but had the combat mobility to move in a mobile home, a shotgun shack or in a large Queen Anne Victorian, or either just a newer style mansion or McMansion type thing. So that's kind of how it evolved. So, you know, really evolved for me, water flow, Bill Richards from the Florida State Fire College in 1992, going over length times width divided by three, understanding fire flow needs, going to a fire that I actually wrote an article about, taking that class in 92 on New Hope Road. We had a, an arson job of a, a one-story ranch. That fire was at every window on the front, and we literally had just got out of class. The Florida State Fire College was up here in the panhandle teaching the class, and we pulled a two-and-a-half static off the back of the rig, and we had a 1,000-gallon booster tank, and we hit the front of that house through each window for like five to 10 seconds. And when I have a tank of water, we knocked down this house. Well, I grew up with my dad being a chief going to fires, and that same fire, we'd be tanking water for three hours and burn it to the ground. Because we were stretching an inch three-quarter synthetic hose, uh, selecto gallonage nozzle at 125 that was being under-pumped because we wanted to pump it how it felt. And the light bulb came on. It's like, if we use more water in a shorter period of time, we'll put out more fire with less water. And that was in 92, and then it just started to transpire through the thing. So there's really not an exact answer, but, you know, 92 to 2000, his death is is kind of a thing where I believed in it. It was important to me but he had to die for me to get in somebody's face and to really say, this is what we gotta do and using automatic nozzles inside burning buildings is stupid, it's just plain ass stupid and we gotta move forward and it's scary to think that we're 2018 and we still have people using automatics as their primary interior attack nozzle, Where we have fire departments that have not flow tested with a flow meter or a pedo gauge to see what they're flowing, it just, it, to me, it just does, it's, it's the most important thing. I mean, to save lives, we gotta flow water. Um, the fire they just had, uh, 88 engine, first do at the zoo in the Bronx, um, you know, great firehouse, actually, uh, if you look at uh, above my head right there, that's actually up there, that's a picture of 38 truck when Mike Hayes worked on that's the firehouse. Uh, I've ridden an 88 engine and 38 truck, some phenomenal firefighters, but that fire the other night, 12. I think it was 12 civilians died, but how many civilians survived because 88 engine and the Bronx pulled up, they stretched that line, Properly staffed, second engine companies coming in and the largest fire department, the biggest staffing, and their job as a second do rig is to back up the first due rig. And if that's what they're going to do, that's what we ought to be doing in suburban America with two and three person engines. And they pushed into that building flowing water. And for anybody out there that trains and wants to say, I've never been to a fire, I'll never have to go to a fire where I have to leave the nozzle open, pushing in, you just haven't been to your worst fire yet. Or you haven't talked to people like the ones that worked on 88 Engine here about a week or so ago, where that's what they had to do to save lives, and that's what they did. They flowed water, and they saved lives. And we're going to continue to have those fires. We're going to continue to have big fires, and we're going to have bigger fires. And the fire load of today in the fuel packages, there's no doubt the the, the, the rate of burn, the radiation feedback, all that fancy stuff, the you know, this, I love the science of the megawatts. It all comes down to simple things. Firefighters don't need to know all that. What they need to know is they got to be flowing X number of GPMs and they got to be able to do it while they're moving, pushing in because lives are at stake on it.
0: That's amazing. That's good stuff. It doesn't escape me how difficult it must be to talk about Maurice um, and to have written about him. And I really appreciate that you've done that for all of us to learn from. I'm gonna attach that article into the show notes for this podcast. I'll attach um, some of the videos that I've seen you put out on on county fire tactics from your department and neighboring departments that were uh, pretty crucial for me and then being able to share with other members of my department of guys fighting their way in, opening the nozzle at a well-involved house and moving while flowing so that they could then cross the threshold into the front door. Some people might call it transitional attack. You call it whatever you want, but it was the crucial tactic of just opening opening the bale, keeping it open until they had space that they could then occupy interior. I mean that's
1: combat firefighting. It's worth the risk. It's not, you know, some little fancy slogan. You know what I mean? Like you know, I, I believe in it. I don't sell the stickers. If you mail me an envelope, I'm, I, I'll mail you the stickers. It, you know, I, I you know it's not a sticker. It's it's, it's just the truth. It, it's worth the risk for us. And more than just interior fart tech, it's worth the risk. You know, a lot of people ask me, you didn't ask this question, but I want to, since we're talking about Maurice, Is worth the risk for me to put myself out there out of respect 18 years later, 17 years after Maurice's thing to do what I didn't do before him. And that's what I live with. I live with that if I could go back, I knew what to do, you know what I mean? And, I, and, and you know, at the end of the day, I can't go back to, to November 24th on Thanksgiving or November, you know, 21st when I was working with him where I could have, you know, took him downstairs and stretched a line and charged it and flowed water and, and talked to him about some of the stuff in the essentials guide doesn't make sense that, you know, that. True safety on the fire is an attack line, going to attack the fire and searching is searching and not the two combined. I mean, you can attack the fire and then search from there back, um, but I didn't do it. So my job now is to move forward to try to prevent anybody else from being a Maurice issues because that fire at 800 East Hatton Street, he was supposed to be in there. He should have been in there. It was a, a fire he'd done a, a dozens of times before, but his passion, his cultural raising was somebody's trapped search is the most important thing. We just failed and I failed. I take a lot of responsibility to let him know that, hey, if you have a house fire in somebody's trap and you're the first to engine on the nozzle, the best thing you can do for them is to get that nozzle to the fire as fast as possible, put water on it, knock it down, and now we can break all the windows, we can open all the doors because there's no flow path. We killed the flow path by putting water on the fire and putting it out, but I can't go back. I can only go forward um, as a whole so you know like I, I like to tell people is that fire really was a bread-and-butter fire we just forgot to toast the bread and put the butter on it and that was a huge thing is is you know we didn't you know I always like to say Waffle House if you go to Waffle House they do it the same way every time and we weren't doing things the same way every time it was just kind of a piecemeal deal and after Maurice's death when I started training firefighters when I went to Escambia County as the first training officer was my my foundation was if you're a first do engine company you have the highest probability of getting injured or killed at a house fire because that's just where it happens but when you get there you've got to water the grass in a front yard make sure you've got a good looking good feeling stream that you can see that you're flowing the GPMs and when you move in you push in aggressively remember you can dry shit out but you, you know you can't unburn it don't worry about water firefighters don't drown fighting fires. I mean, yes, they can drown in a basement, but mostly they burn up from a failure to flow water, push in flow water. When that fire's knocked down and, and that engine officer says, water on a fire, we got a knock on it. Now the incident commander, the truck company, the rescue company knows, hey, we can break windows without worrying about a flashover. Now we're saving lives. We're saving lives through water application, through the, the stopping that fire growth and being able to rapidly vent that place. And I think that Maurice, you know, he died on November 25th. I I can truly think that he saved lives through the teachings and through people reading about what happened and about learning. And I can say since his death, the last 17 years, I've been obsessed. And and that might be a bad word, but I've been obsessed with every line of duty death that involved the firefighter on the nozzle of the first due engine company when, you know, an engine company arrives, whether it be San Francisco You know, Berkeley Way or Toledo or wherever it is, everything in between. In the last 17 years, if a firefighter dies, assigned to the nozzle, I want to know why, what happened, what went wrong. And I'll tell you, 99% of the time, there was no problem with them being in the building. They should have been in there. They were doing their job. They were doing what it was. It was worth the risk. We just failed to explain to them that they needed to flow water. That's what it comes down to. Berkeley Way was a fire behavior event. Um, Toledo was a fire behavior event and I don't want to start talking about a lot of other ones because I'll I'll leave out something and I don't want to offend anybody, but they were doing their job. They knew what they were supposed to do. We just culturally have to continue to drive that message that water delivery is as cool as a 30-inch pro bar, plain and simple.
0: Absolutely. That sounds a lot like... Well, right now on your Facebook page, uh, CF Tactics County Fire Tactics. The profile picture is this cool logo. That says Tactics Put Out Fires. Right. So, the, I mean, that's really what you're getting at, right? Is that is these tactics are what put out fires? It's not. It's it's not necessarily strategy. It's tactics.
1: No guaranteed tactics put out fires hand down. There's no doubt about it. You know, I say that being a 13, or actually this month and, and next week will be. Um, 14 years that I've been a battalion chief. So for 14 years, I've been a, an overpaid fire buff watching firefighters you know, <laughs> put fires out. And so it's not like I'm talking about, I'm a fireman that can't make chief and I'm talking about the chief. I'm talking about fellow chiefs. We're there for when the normal doesn't go normal. Do you know what I mean? When they can't get that door because – it's barricaded or there's burglar bars or there's a propane tank that blows up or there's a collapse or managing chaos amongst the mayday. The reality is, if firefighters are properly trained, we invest time in them, we teach them how to stretch and flow properly, we teach them how to search, vent, when and when not to break windows, you know, how to use you know, a six foot hook and a halligan, then the chief is really just kind of there to orchestrate it. They're not playing the music, they're just kind of doing their wands in the air but the reality is the musicians know what to do. The firefighters know what to do. The tactics put out fires, and we got to get to that. vest. don't put them out. Fancy talking doesn't put it out. It's stretching that line flowing water, getting searches, opening the roof. You know, forceful entry. I, I got video after video, and I don't post it because I don't like to, to, to put anybody in a bad spot. But I was just recently in a large, large metro city where they couldn't force a, a pretty basic steel door and a steel frame. I mean, there was no drop bar. There was no nothing. They couldn't crank the saw. They didn't really know how to use a Halligan tool. What was even more embarrassing is one guy had his own pig. Well, he goes and buys an awesome tool from Chris at Austin, Texas, spends that money to buy it, and he don't even know how to use it. It's like, come on, we're putting the cart before the horse here. Um, You know, nobody knows what city it is because I go to a lot of cities. But I thought, you know, at the end of the day, they don't need these chiefs here. What they need is a training division or a culture of training to teach them how to use that pig and how to use that pro bar halligan, how to size up that door because literally it was a basic door. This door was as easy as any door prop out there. Nobody had ever really taught them or they had not sought out how to learn when to use the ads, when to use the the forks, and, and that is 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 very common across the fire service. You and I don't see it because at conferences, who's there? The ones that want to know how. Right. The same coming over and over. But it's those ones in the firehouses. And that is where we got to get a more in your face approach in a firehouse. You know what? You don't have to be into the job when you're 48 off. But when you're here for 24, you need to know how to do this job because you might be the one that's coming to get me. You might be the one when things go bad and the chips are down and I get disoriented because I miscalculate what I'm doing. Now I'm behind that door and I need you to open it. So um, I think the fire service, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't be politically correct, but we got to get more in your face and and You know, one of your questions that you sent me was about the conferences. I'll tell you the big drive on me for the fire conferences was to make my area, Northwest Florida. I couldn't get people to travel. They said it cost too much money. Their wives wouldn't let them go. They had on and on my side job. So now I I wanna have as many fire conferences as I can to let Northwest Florida firefighters in for free or as reduced price as possible where they can stay at home. They don't have to stay out of town. They can see their kids in the morning. So that was my big drive for the overall conferences. And then for anybody outside to be able to go to a conference and, you know, have a free shuttle, get the best rate on the hotels, get the best rate to where they could literally come here and have a good time. If they choose to drink and they can drink the beer that we provide for free, because the mission was to get them good quality training at a low price. And and a lot of that stems from Maurice of, of just, you know, knowing that we can make a difference on through training and making it better and getting back to the tactics put out fires. When I go to a fire and the fire companies get there and they stretch right, they force the door right, there really is nothing for me to do. I'm just talking on the radio to make myself feel good. It really is what it is. It's just, it's, it's, it's a, a, you know, an empowered buff is what I like to call it. I'm just a buff that's empowered with a radio and a set of bunker gear. And I'm just there. And every time I go to a fire, I'm there ready for when things might go bad. If there's a collapse or there's a flashover, there's a miscalculated O2 cylinder or whatever, or to be their coach to call for more players. You know what I mean? To have that depth in sports. I always like to say the depth of the bench. Well, the depth is only a, a-, a call away, getting on the radio and calling the second string. Not that they're second string, yeah. but when the string is tired, they get injured, chips are down, we want to throw in those extra players.
0: Excellent. Uh, that kind of dovetails into something I wanted to ask you about. I, I failed to put this in the uh, the topics that I sent you, but I was thinking about it as I cruised through some of your old Facebook posts. Um, you're you're pretty adamant um, about taking a more mobile command stance, whereas uh, a lot of the a lot of the feeling in the fire service is that command needs to be stationary. Can you talk about why you've made that, um, why you just, you tend to want to be mobile and examples of maybe when that's been positive or negative or how that's worked out for you?
1: Um, most of the time you, you, you hear or see me mobile, actually I teach a class, tactical command, strategic and tactical command post. Um Strategic being at the back of a $50,000 SUV, tactical being in the front yard. Um, you know, it's interesting you ask that question. Uh, about a week or so ago, I had a, a good fire on Pensacola Beach in a large three-story house. The first 30 to 40 minutes, I never even left the back of my vehicle. I positioned it across the street in the driveway of another you know, million-plus-dollar house. And I was on my command phone, literally commanding in more of a strategic mode, um, literally calling for dispatch to do you know, timers of when this company's entering on air. I was doing air management, all that kind of thing. So I do believe in strategic command styles. Or West Coast Command styles at the back of a vehicle. If it's a complex incident, of, if it's you know if it's a, a ranch style house that you know we're basically going to get a knock on it with a tank of water, even though we may be catching a hydrant, then the front yard for me is where I can see, smell, taste what's going on, see what's happening, and 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 it really kind of evolves from before we had the staffing. When I was going to fires with just four firefighters, one engine, and me there was really nobody for me to command. It was me commanding one lieutenant, one company officer, and when they went in with a hose line, I'm the one that's kind of getting the line out in the front yard ready. I was the one stretching the backup line to have it charged at the front door for event point ignition or for a possible flashover, having it ready where the backup or door person may have to come take that line and staff it as one person on a four-person company. So my tactical command thought process has evolved from – being on a fire ground where there was no one else to do it. I was the only one that could, so I'm there. The company's making entry through the front door. Now outside, it's me and the driver. They're making a push. There's nobody assigned to force the back door. I can either stay out front and write down on a piece of paper about the lieutenant and the three firefighters who I just had dinner with that night. I could tell you their wives' names and their kids' names. Writing it down on a piece of paper is not going to make it any more safer on that fire ground. And if something goes wrong, talking to them is great but I have no other resources to deploy but myself. So the best thing for me to do is get a second line at the front door to control that vent point ignition that may happen, or get around back and know how as the chief officer to do a one person force at a back door to give them a vent opposite the push, give them a second way out, throw a ladder, whatever it is, and then that's evolved. So if you go back to 2004, when I first made battalion chief, You'd see me on a fire ground with an air pack on my back. I might be throwing a ladder on the A-side, forcing the back door, stretching, because there was nobody else to do it. And as that's evolved now, I rarely put a pack on my back unless I'm the second chief and I'm going to be the interior chief. I'm more and more so I'm at the back of my vehicle or I'm in the front yard. I may do a 360, but I'm not all over the place. I want to be able to see the front of the building. And my biggest thing as a chief is my number one thing, number one thing as an incident commander on a fire ground, specifically a private dwelling's, is what is the hose line doing? Is that hose line moving? That's what I'm watching. I wanna see, and I've been saying it for a long time, I think we should color code our couplings. The first coupling is green, the second one is yellow, and the third's red. If I pull up and there's a red coupling in the front door, then I know that they've they've already passed. Those first two couplings are 150 feet in the building. That first section, I wish that the 25 foot mark had a four inch white band around the hose, so I know they're 25 feet in. And then they get to the to the first couplings, green or fifty in. If I get in and I see out in the yard, I see that yellow coupling, but the white bands at the threshold, I know they're seventy five feet in. And now I got a measuring stick. Is is that line moving? If that line's moving, and conditions are changing for the better, then we got to win in team. If that line's stagnant, there's no movement, smoke's getting worse, higher velocity, denser and darker. I know they're not getting water on the fire. They're buckled down, and I either got to get them another line. I need to get them better ventilation or I need to back them out. And so I want to be able to see that because I don't expect a three-year or two year, or maybe a three-week door firefighter to truly understand what the smoke's doing above his or her head to tell me I want to be able to see it. So when I'm if I'm down the street and it's a it's a eighteen hundred square foot house fire on a poured slab at the back of my vehicle and I'm relying on somebody to describe what they see. That shit already happened 30 seconds ago. It's too late. But if I see it, I can instantly go on the radio, command to engine three nozzle, open the nozzle, flow water, flow water, flow water. Or, you know, command to engine three driver, I need a a second line rapidly, you know, stretch the bumper line or what. I see it. And now I'm not receiving information to digest to then give back out a command. I see it and I give the command. I'm cutting out that 30 seconds. I'm cutting out that minute because. That's where I'm managing tactics. I'm not managing strategy and fancy radio talk and pens and papers at the back of a command vehicle. Um, And I've done a lot of studying of it, traveling. I've done a lot of buffing from cities like New York to Chicago to Louisville to to New Orleans. All over the country, i buffed. I I was, you know, especially in the 90s, I would go as many cities as I could. I'd ride the rigs and go to fires. And the best fire grounds I've been to is where the chief can see the fire building and see what his or her men or women are are, are not doing. What results are you getting? Um, you know, tonight, um, by the way, there's a football game, and both those teams are
0: within
1: <laughs> uh, Georgia and Alabama. Those two coaches are going to be on the sidelines. They're not going to start the national championship tonight, and the coach is not going to be in a press box. He's not going to be in a locker room. He's going to be on the sidelines so the football players see the coach he sees them and he sees what's going on to make those critical decisions when we're down to, you know, 22 to 21 and we got 42 seconds left, I got two timeouts and, and now he's thinking, when do I use those timeouts? That's what the fire ground is. A fire ground incident commander is a coach and they're not needed until it comes down to that crunch time to make that call when it's down to 42 seconds and we've only got one timeout left and they could run the clock out let us. We, let's, let's stop the clock. And let's get an on-sides kick or whatever. And there are a lot of analogies between football and sports and firefighting and coaching. And I just, I don't see the coach staying up and, you know, the coach is not back in the locker room. They're on the sidelines. And most of the time, the chief needs to be on the sidelines. And, you know, if it's a large incident, yes, a high rise. um, You know, that large house the other night. Is there going to be times where we got so many companies, especially if it's a second alarm on arrival, you definitely need somebody strategically managing it. As soon as you can get a chief there, the run op so that chief needs to be around that building, in that building, and needs to be that offensive or defensive coordinator, making sure that we're we're doing what we got to do to you know analyze every second for an overall win of the game.
0: Well, wow, that's really interesting. I like that analogy of the coach, and I thought it was interesting. You know, you're you're talking about being a chief. Would you, you call it a, a glorified buff? Well, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and you mentioned a couple of times earlier about your dad, you mentioned going to fires with him when you were a kid, that he was a chief. Uh, you know, I mean, you you basically been doing this buffing fires your whole life. Um, can you talk about your dad a little bit? Um, I know you're a second generation fireman. I know you lost him uh, fairly recently and talk about what he meant to you, his passion for firefighting and how he passed the torch to you.
1: Um, I mean, he definitely gave me the burning desire. I mean, he was you know, in the 70s, I was, you know, a little kid, he was taking me to fires all the time. I was running out the door. Um, you know, I've said it before in some of my talks, you know, my first civilian fire fatality was on Laurel Street, you know, here in Midway where I still live, um, and, and an older gentleman, they pulled out, he was sleeping on a couch. That was my first experience of seeing a burn-up body. But, you know, he took me to fires and, and, you know, my dad, after a fire, he always, you know, he was military. He served over 20 years in the in Air Force. He got in during Korea. Um, grew up in the south side of Chicago on South Illinois near 75th, just a couple of blocks from where the collapse happened years ago in Chicago, um, where they had to dig those firefighters out. And so my father's upbringing was, you know, he, he didn't have a silver spoon. He grew up in low income housing. He worked for everything he got. He, he my grandmother signed a paperwork um, during the Korean conflict. He was, you know, 16 or 17 years old. So he was somebody that had to work for everything and. He was a very humble, no ego. If he did it wrong, he would admit to it. And so growing up going to fires, he would always say, hey, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. Um, As a kid in the 70s, my dad was the first chief or first training officer in all the northwest north Florida, for in fact, and definitely northwest Florida to write a letter to the Florida State Fire Marshal's office to get the Florida State Fire College out of Ocala to send instructors up here. So starting in the 70s, Ocala, the fire college, would send instructors up. They would send them up on a Monday morning. They would teach a 16-hour class, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. And they would teach those classes from 530 to 930. My dad was writing letters and getting them coming up twice a year. And so I just grew up knowing that training was everything. That was my dad's college degree was in education um, and that training fixed everything. Um, Mm -hmm. to give you a little analogy of what he kind of transpired to me in the fire service is the only sport that I really played other than trying t-ball or baseball was soccer. And I was sitting on the bench and my dad said, if you want to start, you got to put in more time than the guy that's starting over you that you're going to practice with. You got to be practicing when he's not practicing. So my dad built me a full size goal, soccer goal at our house in the yard. And then he said, you got to find a kid that's two or three years older I was a goalie, and you got to get him to kick on. He's got to 100, 100 times a day or 200. And I did that, and I finally I got better. And then I started starting and not playing more. And my dad kind of trends in that with the fire service. My dad said, The more you know about firefighting, the more you're going to enjoy going to a fire. He said, You know, we don't want to go to, you know, we don't want people's stuff to burn. But if you go to a fire and you don't know what you're doing, it's going to be stressful. It's not going to be fun. When it's over, you're going to be embarrassed. You're not going to want anybody to talk about it. But if you train, on how to stretch a line, or how to pump a truck, or how to cut a hole in a roof, and you get good at it, and the day you go to a fire, you get to do that, and you do a good job. You don't even have to talk about it. Everybody's gonna see that you knew what you were doing. You're gonna be confident, you're gonna be okay to critique it, because you can always get better. And so, my dad just kind of raised me on, you know, in in the world of, of playing soccer, but also the fire service, the training was everything. And the more I trained, and then I would have trained, it seemed like I always had a call that I would use that training at, and I was like, this is cool. This feels good. You know, it's like practicing, you know, sports and, and the the better you are at free throws. You want to be the one, your hands up when it's time to do the free throw in a basketball game. And so he passed that on to me of just, you know, training and education, taking me into the firehouse and, you know, getting into reading and just putting the whole thing aside about not knowing. If you don't know, raise your hand. Um, you know, I'll never forget it. Uh, 1992, um, you know, and, and I guess in 92, my dad was, you know, he was in his mid fifties already. Um, and in 92, him and I signed up for a, a rescue class at the Pensacola state college. And, uh, the, the Pensacola fire department was putting it on with a four story drill tower and they had a burn back when they burn, they used to burn like tires and just heavy stuff. And I got to do that class zero visibility, almost like a smoke divers class and search all four floors. I'll never forget coming out and looking at my dad. And at the time, you know, I guess he was, you know, he was three years, 35. I guess he was 57 years old. And I looked at my dad and I thought, he's 57 and he's in here, full bunker gear, hot. You know, it's hotter in a burn building than it is at a house fire. Let's just be honest with ourselves. It's hot. And he was showing me the way that. At 57, as a chief, you know, chief of department, he wasn't too good to train, that we can always get better, we can always train, and that, you know, that was 25 years ago, but that stuck with me that, you know, I hope when I'm 57, I would be willing to still go put on a full gear and an air pack and take a class, not just for my son, with any firefighter to motivate him. So, you know, it's a unique um, relationship that we had, uh, going to fires our whole life together, taking classes together, Um, up until he passed away. He literally sat in the back row of every county fire tactics seminar, conference, he was at every one at the back of the room. Um, He was, you know, up until he got sick, Anytime we had an acquired structure, my dad actually had uh, rented a bunch of houses, he had a trailer with tools in it, he would build our props for us. If we got an acquired structure, he'd be out there with my brothers helping us, you know, fix up an acquired structure, getting, you know, set for survival drills or RIT drills. you know, when I went to Escambia County, he rode with me a bunch of times. We'd come and ride for 24 hours, you know, up until, you know, I like the last time he rode was he was 78 years old. He rode with me for 24 hours, you know. Um, so just a unique thing to have it. Not a, you know, a lot of firefighters, their dad was a firefighter, but they didn't necessarily go to fires with him. I, I was fortunate enough as a little kid, the whole life go to him, sit in classes with him. And he, I did more of watching him than him telling me. That's kind of, you know, the, the thing is just, watching that he was all about reading, taking classes, taking notes. Um, Bill Gustin reminds me of my dad. Bill Gustin, you know, 40-some years on the job, and he's at FDIC. When he's not teaching, he's on the front row with a yellow notepad. It's always a yellow notepad for some reason. Captain Gustin's taking notes from somebody that's teaching that they don't even realize they're just regurgitating what they had learned from him through all of his articles over the last (laughs) But he's getting something from them that he actually gave them and he's so humble. He doesn't even realize it. And that's, you know, the kind of power of the relationship I had for my dad was don't ever be too cool for school.
0: One of the threads I'm noticing uh, throughout this podcast and throughout talking to guys at conferences and on the phone, just, you know, great social media conversations or whatever is that these, these high performers, guys like yourself, who are, who are impacting the fire service, someone in their career, usually early gave them permission either just by their example or by words they spoke into their life. They gave them permission to dig deep, to have that passion to say, you know, I don't care if these guys are going to, are going to chill all day. I'm going to go out and train. Someone had to to be that example. How cool for you that that was your dad?
1: No, no, it was, it was, it was awesome. It was phenomenal. Um, he backed it up by, you know, just making, he never forced me, but he made those opportunities there. Um, you know, 1988 or 1989 in Colorado Springs, Colorado, at the Air Force Academy, he had a Rocky Mountain muster um, through the Explore Post because I was a junior firefighter. And, I mean, I wanted to go, and, and you know, he, he literally drove him and another um, adult, drove me and, and three of my other junior firefighter buddies from Pensacola, Florida, 24 hours straight through, nonstop. We stopped five times for gas to go to that thing to do whitewater rafting rescue, rope, you know high angle rope rescue, and stay at the Air Force Academy for a week just to 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 throw gas on my fire for training and passion. Um, and from there it just goes on. When I told him I wanted to be a firefighter, he had money set aside for college and he got me signed up. He said, you know, a lot of people in Northwest Florida went to Pensacola State College or a local fire academy. My dad said, if you really want to do this, go go to where they make the rules in Ocala, go to the Florida State Fire College. So. He paid for me to go down there. He got me signed up. When I was done with that, he said, "You know, why don't you just get it all knocked out?" And he paid for me to live. I literally, you know, lived at the fire college. A lot of people just go one week at a time. I lived there. I did eight to five Monday through Friday. Fire officer one, fire officer two, all the check-in-a-box training. I'm not saying it's not important, but you know, got all those certifications on his dime. You know, he paid for it. He, he pushed it. And I'll never forget coming home one day and saying, "Dad, there's this thing called FDIC." You know, it was in Cincinnati, but it's going to Indianapolis, and I think it's going to be the biggest thing ever. And he said, okay, go. And I was like, well, Dad, I can't pay for it on my fireman's pay. And um, he said, well, I'll pay for it because, you know, the Pensacola weren't going to pay for it, you know. Uh, they're going you know, to only going to send the training officer or training division. And um, my dad completely footed the bill for my first year at FDIC, paid for everything, you know. And I'll say that was the biggest game changer, you know, for me was – when FDIC went to Indianapolis, going there and taking those classes from you know guys like Bob Pressler and Mike Lombardo, and just seeing the, them in real world, I read their articles, and now I got to touch them, you know. And and I'd like to say what's cool about them, and I'd like the fire service, you know, to hopefully get back to is those guys, they just go do it. They go teach, they train. You don't see them on social media dinging anybody. You don't see them making fun of anybody. You don't see them getting locked up in a bunch of propaganda. If they got something positive to say, they say it. If not, they're out doing it. They put on their gear and they train. And that is the only negative I don't like about social media is the Johnny come lately wanting to throw their two cents in when the Bill Gustins and the Mike Lombardo's and Jim McCormick and, you know, I could just name so many guys, Ray. You know, the biggest and baddest and most experienced urban firefighters that are respected by you and I, you can't find them on social media bad-mouthing somebody it doesn't happen i I can't find it i've never found it the person that i always see that has something negative to say is somebody i've never heard of not saying they're not important we're all god's children but the reality is if, if if those other people i named that have been doing this job for 35 40 40 plus years if they're not on there dinging somebody then who are they you know who is this person that's got 10 years on the job to be dinging somebody you know and that goes back to to my dad you know that's just how my dad raised me don't, don't worry about how good somebody is or it, and just worry about how good you can be. At the end of the day, how good you're going to be is based on your safety and the lives that you've sworn to protect. And it is about saving lives and putting civilians first. And my dad gave me that. Um, this whole little saying, it's about them or all that other stuff, and it's worth the risk. My dad gets 100% credit. He served in the military. My grandfather served in World War II. Is I was raised um, on a family, my mother worked at AFSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command, which is right down the road from me. So I grew up in in a very, very military area, home of the Blue Angels. And so for me, it's never been a question about who's first. It's always been, I I chose, I voluntarily became a firefighter. I get paid, but I volunteer to join the fire service. And it's my job to risk my life to save civilian lives. Don't go in a burning building just to die, no, but it is my job to do the best I can be And go save lives. And the fire service is saving lives. And I I would just be scared to think what would have happened in that fire in the Bronx if the FDNY were like some other fire departments that are about, you know what I mean, water on fire before you go inside or, you know, risk a lot to save a lot. And they had a whole strategic, you know, vest. There would be a lot more than 12 people dead. There were people alive in the South Bronx over there because. The FDNY has a history of being aggressive and getting in the building to put ourselves in harm's way so others may live. That's been around and, and it's we've got to hold on to that. And I'm going to stop there because I just my blood pressure gets going when I start talking <laughs> about that.
0: I like it. I like watching you go. Well, uh, thanks for telling us about your dad. Um, I love talking about mentors, um, so I appreciate you sharing uh, with us about yours. All right, I want to move into some of the kind of the standard questions I like to ask all my guests. We'll, uh, I'll pick a couple out of this list uh, that I think you could really provide some good input on. Um, Chief, if you could have every firefighter in America read one thing, a book, an article, a blog post, uh, what would it be?
1: Just one article or one specific?
0: Your your choice. Just have – if you could have any every – Firefighter in America, read one thing, and it can be anything from the fattest book to the shortest blog post.
1: I mean, Andy Frederick's articles, you know what I mean? That would probably be it. I mean, um, you know, they're out there on things. Gary Lang put it together, you know, the easiest in a book. He actually donated a couple books to Raffle Off for the H-Rock, you know, probably Andy Frederick's articles. You know, just, you know, reading those, start reading those, you know, whatever the first one came out in the mid-90s, early 90s. Um, reading his articles on top of Bill Richards from 92 from the fire college really gave me that foundation. And then Maurice's death just sealed all of Andy's work into a passion of water on the fire and just, you know, delivering that, you know, delivering that message of it. I mean, that's, that is it where everybody else, we're just regurgitating, you know, people ask me about why I don't write more articles. The real truth is, is, you know, uh, if I write an article, I, I don't know if I the, the, the list of credits would be longer than the article because even though I'm not referring to an article, when I'm talking or writing, I'm really just, I'm regurgitating every article I've read. I've been reading Fire Engineering Magazine, you know, and Firehouse Magazine since the 80s. I mean, in my office here, I, I mean, I buy every textbook that comes out, I buy it. There's a textbook on the fire service, whether it's leadership or fire. I'm not saying I've read every one of them, but I buy it to have it in case I need to refer to it. Um... You know, so I, you know, I would probably say Andy's articles, you know, that would probably be the key factor, even if you're into truck stuff, just having an appreciation and a foundation for, you know, what water does on the fire ground and, you know, getting it. Um, I will add one, you know, one article that I, that was pretty inspiring to me by Bill Manning. um, And it kind of goes with Andy's articles is um, about Picasso And a paintbrush. Not everybody's a Picasso with a paintbrush. Not everybody not every firefighter's created equal with a nozzle. And when I read that article, I thought, you know, I want to be that firefighter. I'm not trying to be better than anybody else, but when a nozzle's in my hand, I want to be the closest to Picasso as I can be to where I I can truly open that nozzle and I can flow it and I can wet every corner, every crack, every inch in the room, and know that I'm not gonna have to, you know, back out. So that was a pretty phenomenal article that just kind of changed my focus on you know, trying to be the Picasso of the fire service, not to be better than anybody else, but just to be the best artist um, in the world of firefighting and firematics.
0: That's cool. I I love when people make parallels to other parts of life to firefighting. I don't think I've read that article. So I'll definitely find that article by Bill Manning. You said
1: Bill Manning, he was the editor um, back before Bobby Halton and um the it might have been on the one where it was the the white cover there's one issue that came out that was a white cover um but it's just it's talking you know about not everybody's created equal and that's reality it's not not everybody's going to be the same on a fire ground you're going to have people on the fire ground that are better than others at force pulmonary and others are better you know at being on the the nozzle it's just reality and, and we got to be more like that um you know uh one of one of the guys that taught me how to be a better nozzle firefighter was Tim Klett. He uh, he actually is a lieutenant at 88 Engine. That's where I, you know, I, I know about the firehouse. Um, and you know, you won't find somebody that loves the job more than him. You might find somebody that loves it as much as him, but not more than him. And you know, it's it's not openly say- said, but there's quite a few people from previous lieutenants, previous captains that just say he's probably the best nozzle firefighter they've ever had, you know, in their career. And when you have somebody that's got 30 and 40 years can say that about an individual like that, that's something to aspire for. I, I don't, you know, I mean, I'm a chief now. I, I don't, I don't want to be Tim Klett. I can't be Tim Klett. You know, I'll never go to the fires he's gone to, but I can be the best Kurt Isaacson I can be. And it, and I'm not out on a mission to have somebody say that, but I do want to be where if I have a fire that presents my itself to me, like they did in the Bronx a few weeks ago, When that fire is over, I want to be able to know that I did everything I could do. I don't want to say, well, if I would have just taken this class or if I would have just asked this question of my mentors, and that's what's critical. Um, We had a fire next month will be two years ago uh, in Escambia County where we lost four kids. The house was like 85% involved on arrival, and um, the companies just did a phenomenal job. There's only one window that didn't have fire out of it. They, they got in that window, they, they found the four kids, they got them out, they passed them off the MS, they didn't make it. But that's a fire that without a doubt, that was tough to deal with, and it was tough for the firefighters to deal with, but with no question, not one slight, de- everybody knew we did everything we could from the first due officer, driver, firefighters, second due officer, drivers. I mean, the lines got stretched perfectly, flowing big water, aggressive vent enter search, you know, supported by rapid water application, all of that stuff came down. And I can say there was a time in my career, 10, 15, 20 years ago, if we would have had that fire. We wouldn't, have, we would not have entered. I didn't enter. They did. I, I stayed outside, but they, I've been to fires where that we wouldn't have entered because we just said it was fully involved. It's, it's, it's too dangerous, or we would have been, not been able to get the pumping gear, or we would, the, the hose would have been sloppy in the street, or we'd have been using an automatic at 70 gallons a minute, or we wouldn't have hit it with a two and a half, backing it up. with it. But we'd evolved over time where we'd have done, we did everything we could do training wise, and our response was rapid. Nobody went to the bathroom before they got on the rig. They knew how to get there without looking in a map book, and Everything lined up and I I looked at the audio, I watched the video of that fire, the pictures, I ran it through my head at least a hundred times. I couldn't find one area where, you know, our companies could have got there quicker. They couldn't have. They couldn't have stretched the hose any faster. They couldn't have floated any more water. They couldn't have got in the window any quicker. They did what they could do and they gave them that chance. And at the end of the day, that's where it's worth the risk. And I tell people that the risk they took didn't save those firefighters' lives. But I want to tell you something. I think it could have saved their lives in the reality of the world of, of the stresses that we take. Because, you know, so many times we have a burden of calls that we go on and we doubt ourselves and, and we doubt ourselves and we're like, man, I could, if I'd have just done this or if I'd have just done that or whatever, you know, and that call, them risking their lives to try to save those four kids. And return it didn't save those kids' lives, but I think they might have saved their own lives. If that makes sense of, of of stress and being able to take day by day and move forward. So the next time that you know what, if the cards are dealt a little different, and they just get one better card, then then that difference might be made.
0: Wow, that's great! What a great feeling to be able to walk away from something like that and just know that you gave it gave it your all. Um, I thought it was really cool that you brought up Lieutenant Tim Klett. Um, and the things that, that his senior men said about him, um, and I guess the, uh, the excellence that they've identified within him. And that kind of plays into to something I've done here on the, the last couple of shows, which is, um, I was calling it fantasy firefighter draft. I don't know. Maybe that's kind of a goofy, a goofy name, but the idea being we all, emu- we all see people we want to emulate. We all, um. You know, whether it's just within your firehouse or you go to conferences with the same people every year, there there are people we see both in positions um, below us or equal to us or higher in the hierarchy, guys that we want to emulate. So I want to see, Chief, if I can get you to play along with this game and um, staff an engine company for me with two firefighters, a driver and a captain that would be like those guys that you would want to go to a fire with, anyone throughout the country, living or dead, you name it. Just one
1: engine company. Yeah. Um, with four people on it. Yep. Well, Tim Klett would be the nozzle firefighter. Um, that that would just be hands down. Um, he'd be the nozzle firefighter. Um. Ray McCormack would probably be the lieutenant, you know, on that engine. Um, And and what just gives me there is, you know, a lot of times it's not the individual. It's the individual of who the individuals are with, you know. And Tim and Ray actually work together. So, I mean, that's like, you know, that's like having the quarterback, you know, I mean, lined up with the right, you know, receiver. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, driver-wise, you know, he's not a driver. I'd probably want Bill Gustin driving a rig um, just, you know, based on his whole – man, his – you know, he's not a big city firefighter, he's a county firefighter. His his, his his thought processes are so deep, it's more than just a line in the nozzle, it's water supply and the hydrant, and he just gets the whole hydraulics. I mean, he's helped Elkhart design big water manifolds and stuff. So probably Bill Gustin as the driver, and then Mike Lombardo would be the fourth guy for just being the doorman that could force the door, take the windows, do the search, jump up in the attic if he needed to for him and open a roof. So Ray is the engine boss. Tim is the nozzle, Bill Gustin driving a rig and Mike Lombardo is the, the irons man sitting in the back seat to back Tim up and get off, get that search on a one man search operation.
0: That's a hell of a crew chief yeah that they I think those guys could get the job done. Well, that's great, Chief. That's about all I've got for today. I want to be really respectful of your time i I would love to talk with you for the next eight hours, but uh i I'm, I want to let you go. um Can you tell us where guys can um find out about the conferences? they can find out about where you're at on social media and just you know how they can kind of get deeper and learn more about the work that you're doing with county fire tactics and those conferences?
1: Um, CF tactics on Facebook, CF space tactics on Facebook or, um, countyfiretactics.com on the, on the website, you know, countyfiretactics.com. Um, you know, that, and, you know, the biggest thing I'd like to leave with anybody listening is, you know, nothing against, nothing against myself. I think I got something to offer, but I, you know, I'm a young man, you know, I'm, I'm, I plan on doing this job for, you know, at least 10 more years. So I'm going to be around a while is my big push is to get these younger firefighters to capture everything they can from yesterday's legends. You know, the the, the guys that I just named, you know, Ray and and, um, Bill Gustin and Mike Lombardo and Bob Pressler and Tim Klett and Jim McCormick and, you know, Kevin Story. I mean, I could just name, you know, Ted Corporandi, you know, who's, you know, doesn't do a lot, but he takes cool pictures. Um, But, you know, tap into those people because they're not gonna be here forever. Um, and I don't mean no disrespect to the Johnny Come Latelys, but I'm a Johnny Come Lately. You know, but John Johnny's gonna be here in 10 years. You know, those guys might not be here. So any chance you get to take a class from them in person, read their articles, because you know they're the foundation that we're all just riding their tailcoats. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but but read their stuff and realize that anything that we do, yes, we can maybe improve it a little bit just based on what they did and science and information. Um, But I, I really my big push over 2018 is a drive to back to the basics with the legends. And let's tap into those guys before they're gone to make a better us so we can make a better tomorrow.
0: That's excellent. Thanks for that, Chief. That's really the the desire of this podcast to to create an oral history of America's fire service. And that that includes. Firemen with four or five years on but of course so much more important are those individuals who are not going to be with us forever having Ted Corporandi on this show a couple months ago was the highlight for me for sure and uh, definitely look forward to hopefully getting to talk with some of those guys I've been able to learn from um, from Pressler and Lombardo in person I get to go to FDTN this year so um, awesome yeah oh I'm so jacked so uh, you know hopefully you get to meet uh, Lieutenant Collette and and uh and Lieutenant McCormick and learn from those guys and hopefully talk with them and maybe get them to to be on this podcast and share with so many other people. So, um, Chief, thanks again for your time. Thanks for sharing um, all of your experience with us and leaving your little piece of the fire service, your oral history on this show.
1: Awesome. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for loving the job. Yo. 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 Yeah. In here with the brass tacks and hard facts of the Ram XD and its ability to go to 14 degree attack angle. Here with the Ram XD, the personal rapid attack monitor with the ability to flow up to 500 gallons a minute either through a smoothbore or a fog tip. This master stream device can be used by only one firefighter to get a large amount of water on a fire in a short period of time. The Ram XD is a very stable device with four legs that gives it a nice solid footprint while still being operated by only one firefighter. We have the ability to not only go up left and right, but to drop down to that 14 degrees, which is critical when we wanna get it away from the building outside the collapse zone, but get that water into the burning solid fuels, whether it be a roll-up door of a garage fire at a private dwelling, or a roll-up door at a commercial building, or even using it at a standard man door. It's more than just a defensive type device. This device can be used as a first arriving company to put 500 gallons a minute on the fire, get a knockdown. The firefighter can shut it down either fold the legs in or leave them out, move it into the threshold of the doorway or even into the building to apply 500 gallons a minute to the seat of the fire. This rapid attack monitor uh, has two options, either the smooth bore inch and three eighths at 500 gallons a minute or the fog tip at 500 gallons a minute. We have the handle here, a bail like you would on a nozzle that allows one firefighter to open and close this. This device can be fed by either a two and a half inch pre-connected line, a two and a half inch static line, or a three inch pre-connected or static line. Uh, Both two and a half and three inch work very well. Uh, As long as you're roughly within three, maybe 400 feet, two and a half would be okay. You start getting a longer distance, you're gonna wanna jump up to that three inch line for the reduced friction loss to be able to achieve what this is designed. 500 gallons a minute. So the Ram XD is a great personal rapid attack monitor that can get a large amount of water on the fire quickly with a 14 degree attack angle.